Good morning, I'm Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Glad you're here. A few announcements for us before we jump. All right. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Hebrews 10. And we will uh, come back to that scripture uh, towards the end. But I want to speak with you today about one of the uh, central fundamental claims of Christianity in terms of what it does. All right? So I think uh, many can have the idea that if Christianity, if Jesus actually does anything at all, it maybe does it in some spiritual eternal sense that has little to no ramifications here where we actually live. So eternity is good. Uh, here stinks, but later it'll be good. This would lead Dallas Willard to say many Christians have a religion for death. He says many Christians have a religion that only kicks in after you die, and he coins it a death religion. Therefore, he said, this approach to Christianity is like having wonderful, amazing, comprehensive car insurance on a car that doesn't run. It doesn't get you anywhere. It has no real power in your life here and now. Man, but one day, you'll be glad you bit the bullet, covered your butt, and did the church thing, right? And it's a religion for death. It's functionally useless now, but hereafter you'll be set. And you might relate to this sentiment. When you look at the claims of Christianity, the claims of Jesus, they seem to be offering you apples that you can eat later. But the thing is, you're hungry now, and you don't even like apples. You're a banana guy, right? So the pastor's up here trying to sell apples real hard. Red delicious. I'm a Honeycrisp fan myself. Amen, right? But there's this lingering disconnect for you in church because you have no interest in apples, never have. You like bananas. And this for me has been a reoccurring gut feeling that I've had in many church Christian services, right? Bros up here selling apples when no one cares. They don't want apples. They don't think they need apples. They don't like apples. And the disconnect, this perceived irrelevance, pastors and religious people have had to try to deal with in a variety of ways. Did you catch that sentence? This perceived irrelevance, pastors and religious people have tried to deal with in various ways. Let's just start selling bananas, Chris. They don't want apples. They don't, they don't like apples. No one thinks apples are cool anymore. Let's go to bananas, Chiquita, right? No one seems to be interested in what the Bible actually says. So let's shift gears to self-help advice and winning friends and influencing people and self-esteem boosters. What you'll see, what you may know as the prosperity gospel or at its worst, the seeker-friendly movement in some cases, where Christians take what they want from the Bible and shove what they don't in a closet. Whatever that doesn't fit in with culturally popular ideas, they brush under the rug. And it's understandable in some ways, because for many, the claims of Christianity, what it claims to deal with, 
The problem it claims to solve is for many not a problem they think they have. So what is the central fundamental claim that I want to talk with you about? What's the great accomplishment of God in the universe that he claims you get to enjoy by faith? It is that at the cross, God in Christ has removed the guilt of your sin. That's it. That's the claim. The crimson stains of your guiltiness before a holy and righteous God have been washed away once and for all by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's it, y'all. That's the fundamental, central claim of what Christians say they believe. It's what the whole Bible points to. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to it. Everything Everything in the New Testament points back to it, or as Acts 10.43 says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Boil it down. What rises to the top of all the Bible teaches is that God forgave the insurmountable debt of your wickedness by thrusting violently thrusting your guilt, your shame, the death I deserved because of the things I've done onto his son. That's the claim. That's it. He defeated it. Your guilt, your shame, your sin. He dealt with it definitively. What the Bible would say, bore it, carried it. So, Many, many, many scriptures, so many that if we were going to read them all, we'd be here all day. But to sum it up, 1 Peter 2.24 says it pretty good. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's it. That's it. He dealt with our guilt, my guilt, your guilt, your failings, your shortcomings, your and my inability to walk in a straight line in faithfulness. He forgave it, forgives it, will forgive it, has redeemed it, will redeem it. That's the claim. That's it. I mean, you can't get anywhere else. That's it. You get beyond that, you've gone beyond Christianity. You've gone on to something else. It's what we are to marinate in and saturate ourselves in over and over and over again until it begins to click and make sense and actually achieve something in our hearts and lives. Because what we have to admit is we really don't believe it. I know we're in church. I know we all like to pretend but when it comes down to brass tacks, the shame of the things that you have done in darkness gnaws at your soul. The skeletons in the closet keep shaking the floorboards, right? We try to avoid, try to deny, try to forget. This is why Forgiveness is so central to the whole thing. In fact, Jesus, before leaving his disciples in Luke, lays out for them the central message that they are to preach 
and that then the church is then to preach for the rest of the existence of the world. He says in Luke 24, 46, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It is the flag we fly. It is the hill we die on. If you call yourself a Christian, it is the rallying point that we call our hearts back to over and over and over again. Because in our weakness, in our prone to wander, we occupy ourselves with side addies and distractions, even Christian side addies and distractions. And therefore, we have to take some measures, y'all, to tether our hearts to a truth that we would often conveniently, even outside of our control, forget, even when we don't mean to. See, it's easy to sidestep and avoid this. It's forgiveness, that's it. Forgiveness of what? Forgiveness of you being guilty before God. It's easy to see why we don't talk about this. It's easy to see why it's just so much more trendy to shift gears, right? And, and let's, let's, people don't want that. Therefore, some Christians have stopped preaching that. Why become a Christian? What's the answer to that question? Because you are guilty of mutiny against your creator. And the penalty of that guilt was death. And in Christ, that guilt has been removed. That's why. That's why. It's removed. It's taken away from you. This is the central claim of the Bible. And yet to our ears, even as Christians can feel so alien and offensive. Anyone else? Right? Glad you brought your friend today, right? No, dude. Just preach Jesus is your homeboy, man. Let's just talk about God's love. Well, that's, man, that's it. That's, that's a big part of it, but that is not the whole story. Just preaching that is preaching the gospel out of context. And you know what you do when you take something out of context? It loses all relevance. It doesn't make any sense. Forgiveness of what? We're fine. We're in church, for goodness sake. Look at, look at you. Everyone, we're all fine in here, Chris. Right? <laughs> when we only preach part of the gospel... It loses its context and therefore loses its relevance. No wonder we don't want any apples, right? We have no context for why we would need apples, right? Only the guilty need forgiveness, y'all. And if we are unable in our day to acknowledge our guilt before God, then we are equally as unable to acknowledge and rejoice in his forgiveness, I mean, doesn't that just make sense? Or you could say it this way. If you are underwhelmed by your sin, you will as equally be underwhelmed by the forgiveness offered for that sin. It just logically makes sense. We can't dice the Bible up and only take the parts that makes us feel good. It makes you a truncated Christian. You've cut off the beginning and cut off the end. You only have the little bits you like. You're not a Christian. You're something else. You've imagined a God 
you've created a God that fits in with culturally accepted, personally accepted ideas and values. Now, I couldn't verify this, but I've heard Nietzsche quoted as saying this. The church is in the business of removing guilt. The only problem is many today have no sense of guilt for sin. So the first thing the church has to do is create the guilt it claims to deal with. Now, Nietzsche had some weird ideas, but he had some good points. First of all, he's right. At least in modern humanity, has become well-versed in covering up, hiding, and ignoring our sense of guilt. We are professionals at looking the other way when it comes to responsibility, <laughs> aren't we? Here's an ironic paradox in our culture today. It's remarkable how insistent we are that there is always someone to blame for everything, right? All of our woes, all of our inconveniences, all the injustice, everything that's ruining this country, there is someone to blame, huh? We are constantly looking for the guilty party, are we not? Are we not? Is every media coverage, who's the scapegoat? Who's to blame for this? Who's to blame for the evils of society? Education, it's the church, it's Christians, it's the left, it's the right. What's the problem with the world, right? Everyone, we know, everyone's just searching for a scapegoat, man. You don't sense that? But what we know, obviously, is that we are not the problem, right? I mean, that doesn't even have to be stated, right? right? More and more, listen, like, just hang with me. All right, don't, it's all right. Listen, more and more, we are accepting the cultural idea that if there is something wrong with my life, it is someone else's fault. Tim Keller, in, his, in a sermon, described how counselors' advertising has had to change over the past 15 years. He said, people used to come to counseling because they knew something was wrong with them. Bad habits, bad thinking, something wrong, right? Now, there has been a cultural shift and people no longer think anything is wrong with them. It's other people. So counselors have had to change how they advertise. And so he quotes this uh, New York counselor's advertisement, which used to say how to deal with your bad habits, now says how to deal with difficult people in your life. It's a subtle shift, about time. It's a subtle shift, but speaks volumes of how we think of guilt and responsibility for ourselves. We avoid it. We sidestep it. We project it. Someone else needs to fix this for you, right? Secondly, to Nietzsche's point, so I just decided, I know we all joke about quoting C.S. Lewis. From now on, all you that speak, I gotta quote Nietzsche, all right? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna up the ante, all right? Fit that in your sermon, right? But, second, but secondly, to Nietzsche's point, it's why many of us maybe grew up in a church where it seemed the whole point was to feel guilty by the end of the service, right? 
a guilt-based, self-despising, self-abasing religion. Is that the right word? Debasing? That's the right word. Yeah. So, so when you grew up, you might come, it might be a beautiful day outside, birds singing, sun shining, but by the end of this sermon, by golly, that, gaster's, that pastor's gonna ground you into the dirt of your own guilt, right? Gonna guilt you into giving more, volunteering, raising, committing, recommitting, re-recommitting, right? Right? And many of us have grown up seeing guilt used to manipulate and control and have responded by understandably saying, well, I don't believe in a God who would make me feel guilty. And consequently, create a gushy, feel-good, unbiblical God that only affirms you and never confronts you when you're wrong, even when you are wrong. Never makes you feel guilty even when you are guilty. See, guilt is an interesting thing. It is something we feel. It is also a position we inhabit. A guilty person has been convicted of something. And you can, some guilty people feel guilt about it, and some guilty people don't, right? There's a psychological word for that, I believe, all right? In other words, many of us are, are okay with God being a God of love and kindness and mercy, but not a God of justice and righteousness who confronts evil, at least not in me. I mean, he should confront it everywhere else, for goodness sake, right? But I'm good, and we, when we separate, see, we separate his wrath from his love. When we do that, you have made a false God, an imaginary God, right? A figment of your imagination that would never condemn wickedness and never call you to a higher standard, which will always lead to hopelessness. And here's why, right? How depressing would it be if after exhausting all of the self-help books, all of the self-medicating modern remedies, after Treading the bottom of everything that our culture has to offer of how it can fix us, give us value, right? After we've tried it all and we came to God utterly broken, needy, exhausted, and then he said, you're awesome. What are you talking about? Just believe in yourself. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps like Craig. You know Craig? He's great. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. How depressing would it be if deep in your heart you knew something was fundamentally wrong with you and you went to the creator of the universe and he said, you're fine. Just, just pretend. Which, by the way, is so many people's experience of Christian culture. Just pretend, man. Brush it under the rug. No one knows right? How depressing. See, that is not empowering. It's not ennobling. It doesn't bestow honor. It doesn't redeem. It doesn't forgive. It doesn't acknowledge. And if that's the case, then there's no power outside of you that can enter from the outside and forgive and redeem the things that you cannot forgive yourself of. See, if we won't allow him to confront our guilt then we just have to muster our own self-esteem with the power of positive thinking and really self-deception, right? The reality is the church doesn't need to create a sense of guilt. 
And the Bible doesn't conjure up the idea of guilt so it can fix it. Just real quick, a little side alley. A sense of moral failure, moral guilt, shame, right, exists in all cultures, whether or not Christianity in the Bible has any presence or not. You know why? Because it is connected to our fundamental idea that there is right and wrong in the universe. So you may call it, some cultures may call it honorable and dishonorable. Some cultures may call it fair and unfair. Our culture tends to call it equal or unequal, right? But morality, our sense of justice, is woven into the fabric of humanity, whether we want it to or not. We all have the sense of fairness and justice. And that secular thinkers actually struggle to rationalize. And where does this come from? We don't know, right? So you have many ancient cultures outside of any Judeo-Christian influence known as honor, shame, cultures, right? And guilt and shame are connected. Guilt is uh, that you've done something wrong. It's connected to an action you've committed. Shame is the belief that you are wrong, that by your actions have made yourself less than, right? That's shame. They're connected. It's it's concerning your uh, perceived value. That's shame, right? Which is always connected to behavior. And we find this in ancient Asian cultures, ancient African cultures, we've always had a sense that number one, there is a right and wrong way to do, to behave towards one another, right? And number two, equally as present, we all seem to fail to live up to our own standards of fairness, right? And this creates a sense of guilt and shame. And all the Bible is going to do is locate where that guilt comes from. It's going to say, when you lied to that person or cheated on that relationship or said that horribly mean, belittling thing to your friend, you did not just sin against your friend. You sinned against your creator who made you, loves you, and you've broken relationship, not just with your friend, but with the very structures of how God intends humanity to flourish. You've disobeyed the design for human welfare. You've ignored his good intentions for you. It's why we can resolve issues relationally and yet still feel a deep sense of shame and guilt because it is deeper than that. The betrayal of your friend was small in comparison to the betrayal of your God who made you, loved you, sacrificed for you. The question has always been, what do we do with the guilt that our past actions mound onto us. So, whether you ascribe to any religious thinking or not, I don't, I don't, I'm a lot of people in here, I don't know, right? We all have to deal with guilt. How do we deal with our own feelings of moral inadequacy and failure? And there's really two main approaches, all right? Two main, I know we're talking about a lot today, going everywhere, here we go. There's the two main approaches, philosophically, of dealing with guilt, either You try and deal with it head on through willpower and self-denial usually requires taking a low, kind of debasing, even hateful view of yourself and your body. This is often the religious approach, how to deal with guilt. Or you attempt to deconstruct morality. You say it was all made up and useless and try to recreate a new structure of morality that fits in with your choices, right? This is the secular approach relativistic approach. Now let's think about these approaches quickly. Let's think about the religious first, right? The head-on approach, how religious people try to deal with their guilt, right? Religious people acknowledge guilt, right? But often think the way to silence it is by proving that you're never again gonna do that thing, right? Self-discipline, right? And 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 it's seen in this kind of rigid 
unforgiving laws that we you know, put on ourselves and put on others, mostly others, but sometimes ourselves, right? And there's this severe form of asceticism, uh, fasting, even uh, this, this approach to dealing with guilt reaches to self-beating, self-mutilation, hatred of the self. And the problem with this is either you're good at it and therefore filled with pride and arrogance at anyone else who ain't good at it, or you're horrible at it and you crumble under the weight of your own inadequacy, now pounded on top of that religious inadequacy, right? And you resign to a hopeless existence because you know you're never gonna make the cut and you live depressed and downcast. Yeah, you're a Christian, but you're a screwed up one. And you're never gonna get it together, right? And that's how religious people try to deal with their guilt. It either ends in pride or despair, right? Now, the secular modern mind tends to deal with guilt in this way. They basically do the thing <laughs> that kids or politicians do when they are losing a game, right? Remember when you're a kid and you're losing a game? You didn't want to lose? What was the default? This, the rules are rigged. This game is stupid, right? right? They accuse and they malign the structure of the game. This is a stupid game. The rules are dumb. It's rigged, you know? Kids, politicians, all right. So they then begin to deconstruct the game. So sophisticated intellectual people, right? They begin to deconstruct the idea of divine moral law. They find loopholes in it and they dissect it under a microscope and say, see, this is all culturally made up. You can find the roots of morality in you know, tribal warfare and de debtor relationship. And this is stupid and you shouldn't, we shouldn't be subject to it and you shouldn't be feeling bad about it. And truth is your own truth. Speak your truth. Make your own truth. You define and establish yourself. No one establishes you. I mean, this is the water we drink, y'all, right? You're like, you didn't even recognize. Truth is made up anyway. That's my truth, your truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. We're all fine. Let's all just have our own truth, right? That's how the secular mind deals with their sense of guilt. Let me tell you how Nietzsche dealt with it. I'm just gonna keep riding Nietzsche out, all right? In a book called, listen, the genealogy, genealogy of morality. So that tells you what he's getting at. Genealogy, where it came from, right? Of morality. By the way, great book to read your kids before bed. All right. <laughs> basically argues, basically argues that guilt is a useless culturally developed idea originating in the debt-debtor relationship. It is a trait of the weak and can and should be overcome. I'm quoting now. Guilt is a feeling that can be changed and overcome. The superhuman, I don't speak German, it is like Uber or something, right? Is not constrained by inherited morality, but creates his own values, which serves his will to power. In other words, the evolved person, the educated, the, 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 the smart person, the strong person creates his own values. And then he quotes himself in another book, Beyond Good and Evil. He says, if one trains one's conscience, it will kiss just as it bites. So he's saying guilt's nothing, y'all. It's nothing. Weak people feel it more. Strong people ignore it and can train their conscience to kiss 
their own violence and cruelty to others, just as their conscience used to condemn their violence and cruelty to others. It is no surprise that the Nazis loved them some Nietzsche. Right? In our day, it's no exception. Morality is thought of as completely relative. Don't let anyone ever make you feel like you're wrong. You be you. Self-determine you. Self-determination supreme. Speak your truth, right? Sometimes you heard that, right? Truth's in the eye of the beholder. And you see, all this is aimed at avoiding, in this case, deconstructing any sense of guilt or accountability that you may feel because of things that you've done that you know are wrong. Make your own truth. And my truth says it's fine to do the things I've done, right? So if you think that religion is the group of self-deception, you should consider, consider this, right? Now, those are ways we deal with guilt philosophically, cognitively, right? All of us deal with it relationally and personally. Let me tell you, we all respond to feeling guilty different. Let me tell you how I respond to feeling guilty. I get super frustrated with myself, right? right? And then my frustration and my anger with myself for messing up and doing it again, right? That frustration then spills over onto my kids and my wife and sometimes my dog, right? When I feel guilty, I get angry. I, and the result can be I am harsh and short-tempered and impatient. Some people deal with guilt like that. Other people deal with guilt by punishing themselves, by isolating themselves, by withdrawing from community, right? Some people respond to guilt by living in paranoia and anxiety, that someone is planning their harm around the corner, like in the cases of a betrayal, relational betrayal. Someone has secretly betrayed someone who loves them. They often live in a state of paranoia and suspicion that the person they love is doing the same thing to them, right? We live with that feeling. Uh, we can live with the feeling that something bad is about to happen right around the corner, as my friend puts it, always waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, right? We all deal with it differently either by punishing ourselves or by trying to ignore it or by turning up the music louder or by having another drink, right? So how does God deal with your guilt? Well, I can tell you this. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't sin himself by treating your guilt as if it is nothing. That's sin, calling evil good. He doesn't do that. To look at someone guilty of evil and say, oh, it's not that bad. That's not just. And that's not dealing with it. He doesn't brush the guilt of your sin under the cosmic rug and dismiss it. He deals with it head on, acknowledges it for what it is, morally repugnant, in some cases straight up wicked. He calls it what it is. But he doesn't deal with it in a way that is belittling or devaluing to you either. He doesn't deal with it in a way that reminds you of it over and over again, like some people forgive, right? Like they forgive you, but they ain't gonna let you forget about it, right? I forgive you because I'm a Christian, but let it be known to all, you're an idiot, right? <laughs> I'm gonna tell everyone else what you've done, but I forgive you, right? He doesn't do it like that, y'all. Instead, he hangs our collective and individual guilt on the cross, with his son. He definitively, once and for all, does away with it. He removes it. 
He casts it into oblivion, never to be seen or felt again, never again to weigh you down under the weight of your own guilty conscience. Or as the psalmist says in 103, as far as the east is from the west, so he removes our transgressions from us. Or as God says in Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. He acknowledges, he addresses it. He addresses the sin of your offense as what it is and places the suffering that that guilt deserves on himself, on his son. To ask the question, how does God deal with forgiveness and guilt without dismissing or ignoring the moral weight of your action? Well, by allowing his wrath against evil and your guilt to saturate his son. Jesus absorbs it, y'all. He takes it on himself. He is the scapegoat. He is the fall guy. He takes the blame. See, someone always suffers in forgiveness, y'all. When anyone forgives anything, it costs them something. When you forgive, it costs you the right to exact revenge. In forgiveness, y'all, all any forgiveness, the offense doesn't just disappear. Someone has to absorb the injustice. That's what forgiveness is. It's not ignoring the act. It's acknowledging it. It's saying, you do rightly owe me reparation, but you owe me no more. You are taking the wrong in when you forgive someone. You are suffering so that the other person no longer has to. That's what forgiveness is. And that's what the claim of the cross is. Or as Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In the cosmic scheme, we're gonna wrap it up. Here we go. In the cosmic scheme, God knew that in order for us to be restored to him, to know him, to walk with him, to enjoy him, more rules would never accomplish that, okay? So the Old Testament story is of people unable to follow the rules over and over and over again. So God doesn't say, well, you can never make the cut, so here's more rules, right? No, he does what the rules could never do. Or as Roman 8 says, God has done what the law, weakened by sinful flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Following Jesus doesn't give you a new law, it gives you a new spirit. I'm gonna read Hebrews now for us. Chapter 10, one through four, then jumping down to 12 through 17. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Massive sentence right there. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us after saying, for after saying, this is the covenant with which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. Then he adds, quoting from Jeremiah, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus, once and for all, fully, completely has removed the guilt of your sin by his sacrifice. And then according to Hebrews 10, 12, he sat down as if to say, the work is done. Perfect and complete. John Piper points out, he's not in perpetual motion managing evil. He's won. It's finished. He sat down, right? Quoting, he's not like a basketball coach leaping off the bench trying to manage his players. He's not like a general pacing back and forth waiting for news from the front. He is sitting, which signals to all his enemies and to us that the war has been won. The one thing in the universe that could damn his people is no more. The guilt of unforgiven sin. Jesus disarmed the devil of the one weapon he uses to destroy humanity, the guilt of unforgiven sin. And in that moment, fully and forever, forgiveness was wrought for you and for me that we might know and love and delight in our creator. Christianity, at the same time, bestows more guilt than we think we deserve and more value than we think we deserve at the same time. Quoting Tim Keller, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. And you are more guilty than you know because of God's actions. Now you are more valuable than you know. Or as John Newton, the writer of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, put it, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Only in Christianity is our sin and guilt acknowledged and dealt with. And at the same time, our value and humanity affirmed and lifted up. So let's just end with a Nietzsche quote. <laughs> Nietzsche addresses this claim of Christianity incredulously. He says this, all of a sudden, we confront the paradoxical and horrifying convenience with which humanity found temporary relief of guilt. That stroke of genius of Christianity, God sacrifices himself for the guilt of human beings. God paying himself back with himself. God is the only one who can redeem man from what for human beings has become impossible to redeem. The creditor sacrifices himself for the debtor out of love? Can such people believe this? Out of love for his debtor. What he says in disbelief and exasperation, we say in faith and in joy. And when we do, not only does it address our guilt, but it fills us with the love and affection of God himself. When we acknowledge these realities, when these two realities crash together, salvation springs up from the ground. What realities? When we acknowledge the wickedness of our own depravity, and allow the self-sacrificing love of God in Christ to meet us in that space, our guilt is destroyed and our humanity is lifted to a new and undeserved place of honor and dignity. You see, 
God doesn't ignore your guilt. In fact, that's exactly where he meets you, right? He doesn't demand perfection, unlike many people's experience of Christian culture. He doesn't want you to project some pretend perfect version of yourself for him to engage you. No, he engages you exactly at the point at which you need him most, which is in your darkness, in your depravity, man, in the guilt of your sin. That's exactly where he wants to meet you. And if you're up here parading, I'm fine. Everyone's fine. Can't meet you there. And you know what? You're never, you're never going to be fully loved if you're just parading around. You know why? Because you're not fully known. And you can't be fully loved if you're not fully known. So God meets you, y'all, in that place of weakness and depravity and darkness. He meets you in the skeletons under the closet, under the porch. That's where he wants to meet you, in that place. He doesn't demand your best effort. In fact, what he requires is your weakness. In fact, what he requires is you simply acknowledge that you've tried and tried and tried and can't. That you've done the deal. You've tried to walk the path. You've gone to church. You only went to a small group once, right? No matter how much self-determination, no matter how many laws, you, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many times you go to church, you just can't break through. That's where God's going to meet you. In that place. Brokenness. Vulnerability. And in that moment... And only in that moment will you be lifted above the shame of your guilt. Only in that moment will your humanity and dignity be restored, will honor be bestowed on you that we all know we've been created for. It's only there. Till we allow him to access and see and address our darkness, we will never be fully loved because we won't be fully known. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it doesn't mean be perfect or jump ship. It means you've quit hiding. It means you tell the truth about yourself and about God's claims that we find in Scripture. For he has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has taken away the one weapon the enemy had against you, the shame of your guilt, and he has put it on the cross. And only when our honesty meets his goodness does, uh, does it create people burning with worship. Rules don't create worship. Deconstructing morality does not create worship. Only when the weight of your sin is lifted from our wearied souls do we worship. I don't know where you're at today. But today God is inviting you not to give him your best efforts, but your worst failures. And in an incomprehensible divine act, the son became a slave so the slaves could become sons. This is the God of the Bible. And there is none like him. Let's stand and pray.